When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, the beetle wasn't bad, but the rock apes, it, it, I had to be very hungry to eat that. And what's going to bring about the end of the American way of life is the financial collapse. On April 9th of 2015, we came the closest we have ever been to an actual economic collapse. Not only has the North Pole continued its migration and is now moving forward to Russia, it's already impacting the amount of daylight hours that Norway and, and a couple other countries are getting in the, in the winter months like December. Everybody seems to think that the planets rotate around the sun and the sun is some sitting still orb of gas in space and it's not. Hey everybody, welcome to the Survival Show podcast with Craig and me, David, where it's our job to take you step by step through the mindset, skills, tactics, and gear you need to survive almost any emergency, disaster, or crisis and show you how to use the lessons you learned today to thrive in your life tomorrow. Craig, my friend, busy times, isn't it? <laughs> it is busy, but I, uh, but good busy. Uh, I like a good busy. I've been spending a incredible amount of time outside. I was covered in head to toe in mud and sweat and insect bites and everything from being outside all day yesterday, but uh, that's pretty cool. You didn't bury your, uh, your, your wife's truck again, did you? <laughs> no, no. We took the necessary precautions to not bury my truck this time, so, but yeah. That is always a possibility with Craig Cottle in Kentucky, so you never know what's coming down. Thank you to my heroes, because I know the, uh, Tracy sometimes gets to listen to these. I don't know if Chad does or not, but those two guys, if you're listening, thank you again, gentlemen, for hauling me and my daughter out of the mud a couple weeks ago, so thanks. Yeah, Kentucky, man, Kentucky. So yeah, guys and gals, our mission here is to help you progressively increase your survival IQ so you leave out of here better prepared at the end of the show than you were at the beginning. And it's looking like we're going to have two podcasts. So we're going to cover and meet up with our good friend Bob Gaskin from MRE Nation. And we're first going to talk about Bob and what it is that he does, who he is. He's the founder, of, again, of MRE Nation. It has a large large effect on a lot of people in this community of survivalists. He's going to share on quite a range of different topics, including prepping, long-term food storage solutions, MRE hacks, which I'm pretty interested in hearing about, and a lot more. And if you are following along, following along in the Tiny Survival Guide, we will greatly be expanding on sections K3. And while we're on the topic of tiny guys, check it out, boys and girls. It is one humongous and fantastic and easy win-win way that you can help us here at the Survival Show Podcast. The tiny guides are on Amazon. You get a discount for buying multiples of the tiny guides, so go for that. I would buy one for everybody in my family if I had not already bought some of the things that I helped put together. And I have several that I have passed out to good friends and family. Actually, this week at a conference for special response teams throughout the region i shared the tiny guide with several of those guys and uh, got a lot of interest there too so you'll probably find interest in it go check it out on amazon tiny survival guides also 
also, also, HBO. You know how it goes. Hashtag HBO. Go to the survivalshow.com website to partner with this podcast. When you do that, it helps us directly, and there's no better way of supporting the podcast than any of these three ways. Number three on the list is go check out the Sportsman's Guide. Sportsman's Guide, again, I mentioned last week, I was going to get some roof racks for the kayak. Went ahead and ordered them Ordered them that night, got them in, got them installed, ready to go kayaking this weekend. So everything's going to be good to go. So, yeah. Tiny Guides, SurvivalShow.com, Sportsman's Guide. Those are the three ways you can help us out, and we appreciate you very much for it. That's awesome, Craig. Thank you, and are you ready to bring Bob in here? Let's do this. Bob, welcome to the show. Glad to have you here. Man, I am glad to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, what I wanted to do first, because I haven't had a good opportunity to learn much about you either, is to get a little bit about your background. So if you don't care, tell us about your background. Sure. So, um, <clears throat> wow, where do I begin? <laughs> I know that's a big question, but help us out. Uh, United States Marine Corps, 89 to 95, machine gunner infantry. In 91, we went down to uh, Panama Republic of uh, to do some jungle training and uh, jungle survival training and just fell in love with survival training at that point. Um, one of the, the big things is when we finished up the survival training, we went out in the jungle uh, doing a box recon and we were supposed to be out there for uh, six days and ended up being out there almost 27. So <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> ran out of clean water and, and food real quick. <laughs> so, uh, you know, learned, uh, learned a number of things. We, we had a couple Panamanian Marines with us and, you know, we ate all kinds of stuff, beetles and snake and raw fish and <laughs> rock apes, you name yep. it. Right. Yep. And uh, when we came home, I got home and about three days after I got home, after I'd fully recovered, I went to a military surplus store, bought a complete second set of deuce gear and a case of MREs and put them in the trunk of my car. My, my wife says to me, she goes, you know, we're, we're in the United States, not Panama, right? And I went, honey, I will never be hungry like that again. <laughs> and thus began my prepper days. <laughs> bugs, bugs and raw fish is uh was not on the palate for the future if you could avoid it right oh i'll tell you you know the beetle wasn't bad but the rock apes it it i had to be very hungry to eat that and and i was all right you gotta tell me i don't even know what that is what's a rock ape so a, a rock ape it's obviously like you know it's, it's it's like a small uh like a miniature gorilla almost right you know bigger than a monkey but not in not anywhere near as big as like an orangutan or a gorilla or anything but they uh they live in colonies of several thousand and in the jungles, they get really high up in the trees. They build their colonies up there and, and they carry up these rocks that that are, I mean, like you could fit one in the palm of my hand and I wouldn't be able to close my fingers. They're huge rocks and they carry them up into the, into the trees. And when, a, when they feel threatened by a predator coming into their area of operations, they just drop these rocks out of the trees on them. So oh my gosh, here, man, here we are diddy bopping through the, you know, triple canopy down in uh, Panama and this guy in front of me, I see this huge rock land on his shoulder. Of course, back then we wore the, the big, you know, not, not a Kevlar plates like we have now, but the big uh, flak jackets. Right. And it, it hit him on the shoulder and it was dropped from so high and, and going at such a speed that he literally crumpled to the ground. And uh, oh next gosh. thing you know, these rocks are, yeah, rocks falling everywhere. So we all just kind of, first we started shooting up into the, into the trees cause we didn't know what it was. 
and then we just so how do you call out. that out? Contact up, <laughs> right? Look, contact at, at up. That point, fifty meters, at, at that, monkey in the trees. Yeah, <laughs> at that point, there wasn't any calling anything. It was just shoot and get out of dodge. So we oh, we wow. we get out of the area and we start looking around, and the two Panamanian Marines that were with us weren't there anymore. So, uh, oh man, you know, we start That's hollering bad. for them. Next, yeah, next thing you know, they come walking out of the jungle. They're each carrying three or four of these monkeys in each hand, you know, they got them by the arms and they just built up a fire and started skinning them. And I'm going, guys, I, I don't think I can eat any of that. And and by the time it was the first one was cooked, I was going, yeah, g- give me a big old hunk of that, but you know, no fingers or toes. Right. So <laughs> oh man, it was uh, it was an interesting right. experience. I'll tell you. Well, that's really good, Bob. So why don't you take us from Panama then to right up to the present and how you got into actually being a pretty renowned MRE manufacturer. And since I've actually visited you not too long ago, um, I know that you are uh, an innovator in the long-term food storage space. I get out of the Marine Corps, thus began my my journey into prepping, right? And um, by about by about 2001, I was pretty entrenched in, you know, recognizing that I've, I've got a wife, I've got two children. I had a friend of mine that... Uh, that had been involved in a car accident and was in the hospital from in and out of the hospital and rehab for almost seven months. Basically the guy didn't work for almost two years. Uh, we helped him and his family as much as possible, but they still ended up losing their house, uh, losing all their cars, except for one college, you know, savings accounts blown all because he got into an accident and didn't, didn't have the proper preparations. Right. So, at that point, I recognized that as a husband, as a father, I had a duty to protect and provide for my family. And that included if I got hurt or even if I died. Right. So <clears throat> I wanted to make sure I had six months supply of everything. Food, water, fire, shelter, first aid, hygiene, toilet paper. Everybody seems to forget the toilet paper. Right. And um, so that carried me through to 2001. By 2001, I was pretty set in, um, in, uh, on my trek as a prepper. Uh, 2002, uh, had a, a bunch of guys that were attorneys and doctors, just friends of mine. And, um, they, you know, convinced me to take them out in the woods for, uh, three, four days, do some survival training. And I did, and, and they loved it, you know, and everybody learned a lot and we had a great time. And it just reminded me that, you know, I was very rusty on some skills. So I started taking every type of class I could from, uh, you know, mountain survival to jungle survival, desert, urban cold weather, uh, cold weather, wilderness, mountain survival. That was my favorite one. Um, and getting as much education I can. And then that just led me into, you know, taking instructor courses and then master instructor courses. Um, and that, so that carried me through till about 2008, 2009. In uh, 2010, I started doing gun shows, a lot of gun shows, uh, selling a wide variety of survival products. Uh, 2012, we did our first prepper show and it was kind of funny. The, the promoter says, Hey, you know, I've got an open speaking time. Do you want to fill a slot for me? You are an instructor. And I said, sure. And, uh, that's when I taught my first class on, uh, my first seminar on society and events, the first 180 days. And the reception to that seminar was just outstanding. I mean, we, we did so much in sales the last two hours of that, that expo after teaching that class, like 20 times what we had done the previous day and a half. Right. 
Um, so that got me into traveling the country, uh, teaching seminars. I mean, I'd, you know, churches would invite me to teach uh, because there is a, a biblical basis to prepping that most people don't even recognize and realize, right? Um, you know, when Christians say, I don't need to prep, uh, if something bad happens, God will call me to glory. They're, they're so wrong in that, right? And uh, there, there's actually multiple dozens and dozens and dozens of references in both the Old and the New Testament that um, uh, teach us to prep and, and to be prepared and to be self-sufficient. So for several years, I, I traveled doing uh, seminars at churches, talking to large prepper groups, uh, keynote speaker at so many prepper shows, I've lost count at this point. Uh, wrote my first book in 2014, uh, written a total of five. Um, the first one self-published. Two and three were published through Phoenix uh, Publishing. They, they paid me for that one. Uh, and the books four and five are self-published again. So um, <clears throat> that's just taken me. I mean, we for years, we did anywhere from 12 to 14 uh, survival courses a, a year. Um, everything from a three-day beginner course to a 12-day a, a um, uh, advanced course. Uh, the favorite course I ever taught, we did it three years in a row. We started in um, Florida in October doing jungle training. Then we moved to the mountains of, of North Carolina for mountain training and then the hills of Tennessee for wilderness training. Then we shot out to to uh, Detroit for the urban survival training. We had a training facility. It was three square blocks in downtown Detroit that we trained in. Then from there, we shot down to uh, Arizona to do our desert training. And then from there, we shot up to Kodiak, Alaska for the cold weather wilderness training. So we took these guys from <laughs> nice and hot Arizona to Alaska, and we ended up there the second week of November. Um, so just really enjoyed it, you know. And, and the thing is, is with the prepper shows, I was always looking for better products than what everybody else was offering. Something bigger, something better, something unique, something that was needed in a survival situation that you can't just get trying to get away from the same old, you know, everybody hawking the same little kits, right? Um, and that's what led me to the MREs. Uh, most of the time when you go to a gun show or a prepper show, when you buy military surplus MREs, they're, they're already at least two, three years old. Um, and I wanted something fresh, something new, something that people could get the full, you know, three to seven year shelf life out of. And, uh so I contacted a buddy of mine that had a, a company making MREs. And I said, hey, man, I want my own MRE. And he said, sure, great. You know, and I ordered a pallet of 24-hour rations uh, that he and I worked together on designing to give people food, water. Uh, so they had food, water, fire, and hygiene in one 24-hour kit. And we went to a prepper show in Doswell, Virginia, full pallet of these things. And we sold the entire pallet on Saturday. We were completely sold out by Sunday morning. So I brought in, I had a, another half a pallet that we had previously ordered sitting down um, in Richmond, about an hour and a half from where the show was. Shot down there, picked it up Saturday night. And we sold out of those on Sunday. So my wife says to me, she goes, hey, I think we need to invest heavily in MREs. <laughs> They're selling pretty good. And I said, all right, honey, let's do it. So we started that path in uh, October of 2016. And in January of 2017, uh, the only company manufacturing MRE bags in the country, actually mil-spec MRE bags anywhere in the world, was a company called Cadillac Bags out of Southern Illinois. And uh, to get 
a printed bag with my logo on it. They wanted me to order 52,800 as an MOQ at 29 cents a piece. And I was just like, guys, I'm, you know, I'm not going to go through 50,000 bags anytime soon. So I contacted an engineer that, that had uh, experience in the extruding industry and he designed for me my own uh, extruder. And so now we manufacture mil spec MRE bags for anybody that wants them. And uh, our MOQ is nice. only 7,000 units as opposed to 52,000. So now all of my competitors, I sell bags to them, which is kind of nice. Um, and that's how the whole journey got started. Now there's, there's 14 different uh, sub-industries in the MRE industry. And we literally are in all 14. We're the only company in the world that, uh, that is in all 14 subcategories of the MRE industry. And, and I'm, I'm pretty proud about that. That's uh, Marine Corps to now. Okay, Bob. So I always like to get back to the basics. So there's probably some folks that are listening right now who may have even never heard of an MRE. I know back in the days when I was in the military, <laughs> we called them uh, K rations or C rations. And things have changed since then. Can you just bring everybody up to speed on maybe a little bit of the history of MREs and what an MRE actually is? Sure. Do you want me to start with the World War II K rations or just roll right into the MREs? All right, cool. So <clears throat> World War I happens, right? Uh, we had zero stockpile of any type of uh, long-term ration. Um, so basically the military was literally just grabbing cans of meat, cans of uh, fruits and cans of soups, vegetables, anything they could and stick it in a box, <laughs> right? Um, by about 1942 into 42, we were rolling pretty heavy with the K rations, which is real interesting because some things from the K ration still are prevalent today, just because, just to show how little the, the government and the military actually changes. Right. Um, one of the keys to that was because it was a canned good, the military set an inspection date of three and a half years from the date of production. So they would inspect randomly inspect a couple cans out of each pallet. And then make the determination, hey, you know, we're uh, this pallet's still good. We can keep going another year and a half. So from the K rations, we evolved into what was later called the C ration, which is really a combat uh, meal combat individual, which was bigger cans. You get more calories. It's more dense. It was more designed for mountain and jungle fighting like we saw in Korea and uh, uh, Vietnam. So everybody called them C rations because they were in cans and because the previous generation was K rations. But in reality, the technical name was meal combat individual. We started to see those going away after Vietnam, late 70s, early 80s. And in the early 70s, late 60s during Vietnam, they came out with what was called a LERP ration. This is a long range patrol ration, LRP, long range patrol. So they called them LERPs, where the main was a freeze dried main. So your main entree was freeze dried. And the troops loved them. They were lightweight. They were easy to carry. You know, while it required quite a bit of water to reconstitute, it wasn't anywhere near as heavy as the, the canned rations that they had in the meal combat individuals or sea rats. So in the late 70s, early 80s, Natick Laboratories, which is part of the U.S. military, it's their, their food science lab, basically, um, they, they decided to come out with a lightweight meal that's ready to eat like a like a K ration and and in true military fashion they decided to call it meal ready to eat <laughs> which is where you get your MRE now the interesting thing about that is MREs are actually good for five to seven years whereas the old canned goods were only good for three to five years but because the military had this set hey we inspect everything every three and a half years 
with MREs, they still have an inspection date of three and a half years. So when you're looking at a military surplus case of MREs and you're trying to figure out the age of it, on the outside of the case, it will have an inspection date. And whatever that inspection date is, it's 42 months after the date of manufacture. So, you know, like right now, you go to a lot of gun shows, you're seeing uh, cases have a September 2019 or September 2020 inspection dates. So the September 2020 were actually manufactured in March of uh, 2017. So that's how you figure out how old your, your MREs are. But the, the basic concept behind the meal was to make sure that a, a soldier in the field is getting a minimum of 1,100 to 1,300 calories per meal to get a minimum of 35 to 30, uh, whatever that is, 35 to 39, I guess, uh, 100 calories uh, in a day. <clears throat> so when you have your, your basic MRE military style, you got your, your main entree, uh, a, a snack, a dessert. Sometimes you get a side dish, depending on the caloric count of the main, you'll get a side dish like uh, mashed potatoes or potatoes au gratin or something like that. Then you get an accessory kit, which typically has your coffee, cream, or sugar, some chewing gum. The gum is very important in the military, Murray. We'll come back to that in a second. And, uh, you know, some type of drink mix, right? So you're getting in three, in three MREs, you're getting the amount of sodium, protein, carbs, and calories that is needed by a 20 to 25 year old soldier in the field burning a bunch of calories a day. So when people at home eat three MREs in a day, they're, they're getting way too much sodium, way too much calories for a day to sit at the house watching TV, right? The reason the gum is so key in a military MRE is because of the preservatives that are used by the, the military in the MREs that are produced by Wernick, Ameriqual, and Sapaco, who are the three big U.S. DOD contractors. Um, they really bind you up, uh, especially the cheese spread. <laughs> it has a tendency to really bind you up, right? The idea being yes, that sir. a troop, <laughs> right? So, yeah, anybody that's had oh, MREs yeah. knows exactly what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. But the idea behind that is a troop in the field, you know, if you're in, in extended combat two, three days in a combat zone, you know, doing patrols and setting up ambushes, all that kind of good stuff, you don't really have the time to, uh, right, you don't really have the time to do what needs to be done, right? So that's why the gum is so important in the accessory kit in a military MRE because it contains a laxative. That helps you when you come out of the field to get rid of the stuff you consumed while you were in the field. So I would like to add in is if you have a person that's new to MREs and they don't know that very simple fact, it's a great thing to feed them gum all weekend at a class, right? That is true. That is true. Well, it, actually, the, the you, not that the I have any experience about, in that or anything. <laughs> the, the funny thing about you bringing that up is really when when anytime somebody gets into a survival situation, whether it's survival training or, you know, they're a refugee from a hurricane or something, their body's going through a shock. And the type of food that they're taking in while their body's already in shock is not the type of food that their body's currently used to processing. So having a having five or six MRE accessory kits on hand in your survival kit is always a good thing to have. So so you've got that gum in there. So that's uh, that's your your history of it, which is fantastic. Thank you for that. I learned a lot. Uh, this there was a. It seems like from what I know about the rations that you spoke of, 
why did we make the switch to the style that we have now? It seems like there's a very big difference in your CK rations than, than the MREs that we know today. What, why the big switch? Well, you know, like anything else in the military industrial complex, you know, they're always making improvements, right? Uh, enhancing things. And, and what a lot of people need to realize is, is that when it comes to food, um, you know, like the coffee they put in the accessory kits, why do they put coffee in accessory kits? Because when you're in a survival situation or when you're in combat, the little things that remind you of home the most, the, the things that can get your mindset refocused are little things like a hot cup of coffee if you're a coffee drinker or a hot meal, you know, um, or a candy bar. That's why they put candy bars in the military ones. It's it's a, a something from home, from your childhood, you know, that can help you uh, it, it, keep your morale up, but mostly to help you just kind of keep focused on, you know, hey, this is this is a little bit of home. I'm still human, right? Um, so, so with that, you know, in World War II, they they realized troops were burning a lot more calories, especially more so in the Pacific than they were in in the European theater. Um, and and a lot of our troops were coming out of you know twenty and thirty day combat zones where they were you know malnourished. They were you know getting sicker quicker, you know, because they're by being malnourished, their their immune system is depreciated. Um, so after World War II, they did a lot of, of checking on that. There was actually a, a ton of variations between 1945 and 1952 um, dealing with, with rations. They tried out all different types um, before they finally got to the uh, what is known as the sea rat the meal combat individual. From there, the biggest complaint in Vietnam that the troops had about their food was you know, the, the heaviness of it and the lack of variety. I mean, you got to figure if you if you were in Vietnam for three tours of duty, then for three years of your life, you ate the same 12 meals every time you were out in the woods, out in the jungle. Wow. There's not a lot of variety That's, to it. No, not at all. Right. So so then fast forward, our, our first major extended time when when people had to eat rations after the MREs came out was Desert Storm, Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And they quickly realized that in the desert, the old style MREs that had the freeze-dried peaches, the freeze-dried fruit cocktail, the freeze-dried cherries, the dehydrated beef patty, the dehydrated pork patty, all of these things were were great when you're at Camp Lejeune or Port Campbell, you know, and you're on maneuvers, or if you're in a jungle environment where, where you've got water that you could easily purify. But in the desert, it was a total waste, right? So... That's when they started doing this whole, let's change the diet, let's change the menus on a regular basis. And then, then the military adapted this idea that, that every three years they would change a minimum of three menus. And then I think it's every seven or eight years, nine years, they would do a complete menu change out. Now, here we are after almost 20 years of, of being in, in a war in Afghanistan, right? I think we're on what, year 17, 18 now? Um they've gotten to the point where every year they change at least one menu, preferably to every single year, just to keep things changing. Right. But they do it for morale. It's to keep morale up. The they're adding extra stuff to the rations. They want to make sure the troops are getting the, the best that they can get while at the same time, you know, keeping the morale up. So, so yeah, that's why we've, we've made the migration from canned goods. That's fantastic. There's, You've, you've shared a lot of information. Just one tidbit, too. I uh, have a relative that just got out of BLC in the Army, 
and they had a food contract with a cafeteria that fell through while they were there. And the guys and gals, even at BLC, were like, where's the MREs? We'd rather eat that than what was at the cafeteria. Because they were getting, it was weird. They were getting like raw meat and stuff at the cafeteria. It was terrible. And so they ended up going and getting MREs and were very thankful to them. Just like you were saying, and the morale of it was just, you know, you're in class all day and you, you get raw meat. You don't get to eat. It's hard to do anything, whether it's there or in a battlefield or wherever, which is good stuff. Right. Right. Well, you, you think about it, you know, how many, how many times as a child did you eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? You know, so here you are, here you are in combat, you're 3000 miles from home out of one MRE, you end up with a packet of, of peanut butter spread and a, and a whole wheat snack bread. Right. And now the next MRE, you get grape jelly and you're sitting there in your, in your fighting hole that night, you know, out on LPOP, whatever, and you cut open the bread and dump that peanut butter on there and dump the jelly on there and mix it back together and start eating it. It's, it's a fond memory, right? It, it automatically, your morale is going to go up because it's a familiar thing. So pretty, pretty neat. It, it's, it's interesting how they tie in the whole thing to not just give your body what it needs, but give your brain what it needs as well. Bob, this is all good stuff. Let's step back a little bit now that we've talked just kind of an introduction to MREs and a historical context. Now for you, you got into prepping, it sounds like, due to a tour of duty and kind of a traumatic experience. Can you just talk to folks now who have maybe put off prepping or they've normalized some of the stuff that seems to me to be potentially society altering that's going on now? Can you speak to those folks and talk about the necessity, the need to uh, do some prepping right now and maybe even speak to some of the potential society altering events that we might have to face in the near future. Sure. So let's, let's, let's talk about just getting started and prepping first. It's, you know, there's this mindset, there's this perception of preppers that they're all crazy people running around the woods, wearing gas masks and playing army man. Right. And, and, and this perception has been expanded on through shows that we've seen on TV that, that cast the prepper in, in a negative light. For me, prepping isn't just about, you know, some type of society in an event. For me, prepping is the understanding that as a man, um, a wife and two children, now now a wife, two children, and three grandsons, right? I have a responsibility to my family to do everything I can for them at any point in time, right? Um, so for me, prepping was just a common sense thing. You know, if, if I died, my insurance policy could take three to six months for my wife to get an insurance check. Um, when we got married, we, we had the understanding that she wanted to, to stay at home and be with the kids, right. Until they started school. And then she wanted to work a, a part-time job while the kids were in school so that she could be with them when they left in the morning and she could meet them off the bus or pick them up from school after in the afternoon. So this, of course, you know, put a, an extra burden on me because now instead of a two income house, we had a one income house. So I had to work two jobs. But in doing that, you know, we recognize the the benefits to that, to have a, a parent with our children at all times when they were at home and helping with their growth and their development. So I, I never minded working two jobs. The problem that that created was by about the time my kids were eight and 10, we quickly realized my wife had been out of the workforce for years. And, and for her to get a job at that point, it's going to be some entry level job with minimal pay 
And because I'd been working two jobs, you know, I, my family was used to a certain style of living. We had a lot of bills, right? We've since downsized drastically. But so I recognized that for me to get hurt uh, and, and be in the hospital for an extended time or rehab for extended time or heaven forbid, if I should die and, and they would have to wait three to six months to, to get the insurance check, what were they going to do? You know, we, we had a house that we always, you know, we were always paying three months in advance on our house. So I, I didn't worry about that so much. And, and we, because I don't like monthly bills, the first of every year we paid our electric and phone and, and water for the year. Right. I was still concerned about them having the ability to have food and, and, uh, you know, drink shampoo, soap, you know, laundry detergent, right. The, the necessities of, of life and raising a family. So I started stockpiling that it, and at first it was just six months worth, um, just, just for them, you know, just, just to make sure that if something did happen to me, they would be taken care of. And inevitably as happens with all preppers, you know, we, we find our little, the one thing that, that we sit back and go, Oh, the sky is falling for, right. <laughs> and, and for me that rolled around in about 2001, I'm a little embarrassed to say what it was, so I'm not going to tell you what I went off on this crazy extremist tangent on for a couple of years. Um, but that led me in my research of that. You know, I'm, I'm one of these believers that, you know, you hear something from, quote unquote, alternative media. You know, they they take and read you one paragraph out of a 4000 word news report and and for the first five minutes of a two hour broadcast where they give you an hour, 55 minutes of what their opinion is of how this is going to be the worst thing ever. And then at the end of their, their radio show, they inevitably have some kind of coupon code to, to get you a, a discount on the one product that can save you from that doomsday scenario. Right. So, so in looking at all of that, I realized that, you know, Every prepper finds that one thing that gets them concerned, you know, but if you just follow the bouncing ball until it comes to a stop, you see that 90% of what alternative media is, is touting on is either something that can never happen or can only happen after a society in an event. Okay. Give me an example. I know a number of people in the industry that are 195% convinced that what's going to bring about the end of the American way of life is the financial collapse. Okay. And on April 9th of 2015, we came the closest we have ever been to an actual economic collapse. I mean, we were literally hours away. It took, it took the president working the phones. It took uh, a, an emergency session of Congress that, that was held at like six o'clock in the morning, all, all congressmen that attend six thirty Eastern time to push an appropriations bill through, I'm sorry, to push a, a financial aid bill through that literally kept our banks from not opening at 8 AM that morning. Okay. And <clears throat> what had happened at that point in time is, you know, we, we control the IMF, the international monetary fund. And, and we went to the international monetary fund and we said, look, we, if we don't, if we don't get it, some type of bailout, our government's going to shut down. And more importantly, you know, here uh, it was either April 9th or April 10th, whatever that Monday was, our banks are not going to open. So the IMF, which is controlled by the United States, says, yeah, you, there's no way we're going to loan you any more money without a cosigner. Right. And, and the three nations that co-signed that loan that allowed the government of the United States to keep the banks open that kept us from having a financial collapse 
were the three primary bank, the three primary nations of the BRICS system. BRICS is the the opposite of the IMF, right? It's the the Russian Chinese Indian coalition led organization to keep the IMF from gaining total control and power of all monetary things in the US in the world. And and interestingly enough, it was China, Russia, and India that co-signed a loan with the IMF that gave us the money we need to to keep our banks open that day. So when you look at when you look at the ability of the United States economy to collapse, it physically can't. The entire global economy is propped up by the U.S. economy. And the other nations of the world recognize that if the U.S. economy collapses, then the entire global economy collapses. It's not just us being turned into a third world country overnight. It's everybody else. And they are going to do everything in their power to keep that from happening. That's why we are actually incurring more debt every single year than we had the previous year. Uh, it's it's crazy. The whole thing is crazy. So when people get into prepping, they find that one thing that that drives them crazy, that terrifies them, whether it's Planet X or the nuclear war or financial collapse or whatever. And really what it all boils down to is if you just follow the, the bouncing ball until it comes to an end, you see that all of those things are are symptoms of the actual society and events. What we are going through right now globally and some people can call it, uh, you know, global warming, which is a fallacy, or they can call it global cooling, which is a fallacy, or they can call it climate change, which is actually what we're going through. It, it's all cyclic, right? We are going through the same thing right now that the world went through 3,650 years ago. And if you look through time, whether you're you're dealing with archaeology or sociology, whether you're dealing with religions, because all of the religions talk about it, right? Whether you're a Christian, a Muslim, a Jew, a Buddhist, uh, a Sikh, a Hindu, you know, they all talk about the, the earth cycles and what we've gone through. And there's some type of reference to what the earth went through 3,500 years ago and what we went through 7,000 years ago and 10,500 and so forth and so on. And what it is, is it deals with our journey through space, Right. And, and where the earth is situated, everybody seems to think that the planets rotate around the sun and the sun is some sitting still orb of gas in, in, the, in, the, in space, and it's not. The sun is in motion. So the planets around the sun actually spiral around the sun. We don't just rotate around them. We spiral as we're all moving through space. And depending on where we are in space and depending on the, the location of how our, our, our planet's tilted and everything, we deal with different seasons. And they're all cyclic right? The good news is, is that man can survive these cycles because we've been through them before 3,500 years ago, 3,650 years ago, 7,300 years ago, so forth and so on. The downside is that for the first time in history, greater than 50% of our population lives in metropolitan areas, right? Uh, that started in 2012, 2013. And um, from there, most of our major metropolitan areas globally are within a 300 mile distance of a major body of water. So the changes that the earth is going through right now are cyclic. They are not man-made. In fact, uh, one of the most beautiful uh, pieces of research I ever found showed the amount of carbon uh, emissions that went into the atmosphere with the volcano that erupted in Chile in 2014. And the amount of carbon emissions that were 
ejected into the atmosphere was eight times greater than the amount of carbon emissions that we had reduced by in the previous five years. So the amount of carbon emissions <laughs> that the United States alone, right, and all of our electric cars and no plastic bags and all of the crazy laws in the in the left left coast states, um, all all the carbon emissions that they saved us from putting in the atmosphere, eight times more was put in the atmosphere by the by the volcano in Chile in 2014. So it's not man-made. It, it We have zero impact on, I don't want to say we have zero impact on, we probably have 0.000001% impact on it, but it's all cyclic. For example, uh, a couple years ago, we saw Hurricane uh, Harvey followed by Hurricane Irma, followed by Hurricane uh, Jose, and then Hurricane Maria, right? And everybody went, wow, what a horrible hurricane season we're dealing with. But when you look at that, um, the NOAA came out and, and talked about it. NASA came out and talked about it. the weather channel had a huge expo expose on it, talking about how that's the first arc storm we'd seen in over 3,600 years, right? An arc storm being a series of storms of tremendous intensity, category three or higher that all have the same origin point and follow the same path for over 70% of their journey. Um, that are all spaced five to eight days apart. And so it's three or more storms. And we had four that year. That was uh, 2017, August, September, October of 2017. So they talked about how this arc storm, you know, we hadn't seen an arc storm anywhere globally in, in over 3,600 years, right? But then a month later, NASA comes out, NOAA comes out with these two reports stating that not only was that the first dark storm we had ever seen, but due to climate change, due to, to the site, the earth cycles that we're dealing with, we're facing a minimum of two arc storms in 2018. And interestingly enough, in 2018, before hurricane season actually started in June of 2018, for one week, there were 12 active storm cells across the globe. Tropical storms, they call them out, out in the, the Asiatic and, in you know, India area, right? Hurricanes in the Atlantic, hurricanes in the Pacific. And if you go back and you look at the, that particular storm day, I think it was the second week of June that we saw that, all 12 of these storms were literally running on the same latitude. I'm sorry, the same longitude, right? They literally, they all followed the same path within... I'd say probably 200 miles north or south of each other across the globe. And they were all active at the same time. That was three arc storms, all active at the exact same time for, for a, like a three-day period during that one week. We had all those storms active. And then the reports start coming out. Hey, we just saw three arc storms. We only projected two. And then for 2019, they determined that they forecast that we would have three to five, right? And so 2019 ro rolls around and... And we've already had two uh, dealing with uh, tropical storm cells out in the in the Indian Ocean uh, and one uh, hurricane storm cell that, that rolled through that was an arc storm that just pommeled with tsunamis and and uh, all of that kind of good stuff just pommeled China and, and Japan and, and Korea. Right. So we're seeing an increase in violent storm cells and we're seeing not just an increase in those, but we're seeing an increase in the intensity of the storms involved in the violent storm cells. And it's all part of climate change. So when you when you look at what's going on globally and you look at the way the earth is shifting, you look at the fact that the North Pole 
every every hundred and, and ninety to two hundred and ten years migrates between eighteen and twenty miles. Uh, that it's always in a constant state of flux in in equal opposition to the South Pole. Um, you know that happens. That's cyclic. We see it happening. The differences were at the end of the thirty six hundred year cycle, and now we've seen the North Pole when it completed its you know, 19 to 20 mile journey, it continued moving. Now we're seeing um, less uh, a nighttime, more daytime hours in Alaska during times when they typically get less than an hour a day. Uh, we're seeing Norway having historically low amounts of sunlight, you know, month long accumulation for the month of December, decreasing every year, every year, every year for the last seven years. And it's because the North Pole is still in migration and, and the North Pole is currently moving toward Russia. And this is this is not conspiracy stuff. This is mainstream. This is NASA, NOAA. Uh, if you really want to know what's going on globally, data. right? If you really want to know what's going on globally, you access um, emergencymanagement.au, which is Australia's version of FEMA. Australia is going to get pummeled. They've been getting pummeled for the last four years. They're going to continue to get pummeled. The storms are getting worse and worse, and they know that they're it, it's reached the tipping point where it's becoming catastrophic to their population. So Australia is getting as much news out to their people as possible, right? And they're doing this because not only has the North Pole continued its migration and is now moving toward toward uh, Russia, it's already impacting the amount of daylight hours that Norway and and a couple other countries are getting in the in the winter months like December. Uh, but to make things worse, if you know anything about magnets, you know that when you have two opposing uh, magnets, they they stay opposite each other; they never get closer or farther apart. And when you start pushing them together, it gets harder and harder the closer they get, right? Until their magnetic fields collide, and then they literally will shoot out of your hands. The problem that we're dealing with is that the South Pole, while it used to stay in, in opposition to the North Pole, it has begun a journey toward Australia. And when you look at a globe, you see if the South Pole is moving toward Australia, North Pole is moving toward Russia, they're actually moving towards each other. And the proof is in the pudding, right? You know, the 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 proof is the hole in our magnetosphere that's opening up over uh, over south parts of South America, specifically Venezuela and and uh, Colombia, and parts of Chile. And if you notice, there's that's our newest hotspot, the the big war that's that's gearing up between Colombia and Venezuela. You know, tensions are high, suicide rates are are increasing. Uh, domestic violent rates and, and domestic terrorism rates, domestic, any type of violent situations are escalating in those countries. And they're doing so because the magnetosphere, which is our outer layer of our atmosphere, is literally being torn apart because it's the two magnetic poles are moving towards each other instead of staying opposite each other. Because of that, we're seeing increased amounts of solar radiation, which affects everything from your depression to your anxiety to your heart rate to your blood flow to your mental capabilities on and on and on and on and on. So there's, if, if people will just turn off the fear mongering alternative radio and start paying attention to the science of what's really going on globally, then they don't need to be told, Hey, it's time for you to get prepared. They'll see the writing on the walls. You know, it's, it's, and it affects everything. It affects everything. It affects our crops. It, you look at the amount of, of crop losses we've had in the last three years, getting worse and worse and worse each year. The, the federal government used the last of their grain reserves and, and um, I'm sorry, their wheat reserves and their corn reserves. Last year, the, the U.S. government now has zero corn reserves and zero wheat reserves because over the last six years, they've been 
influxing that and, and putting that into the open market to keep people from realizing that we're in a bad situation with with our our low yields of corn and wheat because of the the climate change that we're dealing with. No, that's all great, but I I, I think that brings us to a good point of discussion. Is is you know with our dependence upon dependence upon our food sources and government and what have you. We obviously you set the stage for us to be prepper minded, uh, have the right food stores and what have you. So I guess I guess a good question is how does food storage because it's so important to all of us fit in this, this idea of short, mid and long-term disaster. And, and, and it doesn't have to be crazy disaster. It's like realistic. Hey, there's not enough food anymore. I mean, what's your thoughts on that? How does food storage play into that? Well, um, so to answer that, I'm going to give you a real quick short story or some statistics in the United States every year between 550 and 625,000 Americans displaced from their homes for some type of catastrophic event whether it be earthquake, uh, tornado, hurricanes, the wildfires out west. Um, We we see it every single year. And nobody talks about that, right? Well, half a million to to 625,000 people, that's a lot of people, right? That's a lot of people that are staying in hotels. They're they're eating at restaurants because they, they weren't prepared for these eventualities. So what I try to tell people is use a common sense approach to your preps. 90%, 95% of the time, when you have to rely on your food stores, it's for short-term events, right? Have some, basically what I tell people is to get started, have a six-month supply of everything that you use in your home. The, The two rooms in your home where consumables are used the most are your kitchen and your bathroom, right? So go through your kitchen, go through your bathroom, make a list of everything that you buy on a weekly basis. Multiply that by uh 26 and then every other week you buy an extra week's worth of groceries you do this until you've got a six month supply going right and it's it people think well that's that's a major monumental task but let me tell you if i take my wife just me and my wife we go to a nice dinner we see a movie after maybe you know go to the county fair whatever maybe go to a, a, a renaissance festival or whatever right when we have our date night or date day i spend 200 dollars right? $200 will, if you, if you have a common sense approach to it, $200 will buy your family of four a week's worth of groceries easily. You spend that on pasta, uh, oats or oatmeal, um, uh, sauces, meats, all these types of things, right? So whatever your family consumes in six months, you should have that stockpiled and you don't just, you don't just stockpile it and set it there. Once you've got your six month in, you want to start rotating it, right? So, you go to the grocery store this week, you come home, all of that goes in the back of the shelf of your, your storage pantry, and you use the items in the front for that week's groceries. So you're constantly rotating your stock. So step one is to make sure you've got six months of what your family consumes. Then you start looking at long-term, right? I'd love to tell you that MREs are the greatest thing to prepping that exists because I sell MREs, right? And, and I think every, every person should have a two-year supply of MREs. I'd love to tell you that, but honestly, I can't because MREs are not the sole thing that a person needs in a long-term survival situation. They're great for a quick, hot meal. I think that, that every person out there that has a family should have a minimum of 12 cases, if not 24, on hand uh, for emergency situations like storms or 
hey, you lose your job and you got to eat something for a week until your pay catches up or long-term disaster. But MREs are not something you want to be eating day to day to day for extended amounts of time. They're too high in calories. They're too high in sodium. You know, they're designed to give you a burst of energy to sustain you in the field while you're, while you're burning calories and energy, right? They're not designed for long-term use. So what I tell people is if you're planning for long-term prepping, here's what you need. You need six months of all the food that your family currently consumes on hand. That's step one. Step two is to have, for a family of four, you want to have anywhere from 12 to 24 cases of MREs, and you want to rotate those every two to three years, all right? Step three is to have your dehydrated foods, your beef jerky, your, you know, things like that, right? Dehydrated uh, fruits, dehydrated meats. Don't spend a lot of money on dehydrated products. Get yourself a dehydrator. Do it yourself, Okay. Because your dehydrated food, when you dehydrate meat or you dehydrate, it's really bad with vegetables. That's why you want to avoid dehydrated vegetables. When you dehydrate vegetables, you take you actually cook out all of the nutrients in the dehydration process. Instead, what you want to have is freeze-dried fruits, vegetables, and meats. Um, because when you freeze-dry, you lock in all the nutrients. You, you're literally, you freeze the product and then you move it from a freezer to a freeze-dryer where it pulls all the moisture out of the product, but it locks everything in. That's why your freeze-dried foods, your fruits and vegetables are freeze-dried raw, but your meats are all freeze-dried pre-cooked. They have to be. So that you can just reconstitute them with water and eat them. So for somebody getting started in prepping, I'd say have six months of all your consumables for your family. The next step is to have 12 to, to 24 cases of MREs for short-term quick meals. Step three would invest in a, a cheap freeze dryer. You can get them at Walmart for a couple hundred bucks. Start freeze drying. You know, learn how to make beef jerky, chicken jerky, salmon jerky, all that kind of good stuff. Learn how to dry fruit, food, and then invest into your freeze dried products. Um, when you invest in the freeze dried products, you don't want to invest into pre prepared meals like companies like Mountain House and, and Wise Food. Some of that is great to have because it's quick and easy. But most of that is high in sodium and it's got preservatives in it that in the sauces that your body's not used to consuming. You'd be better off investing in freeze dried meats, freeze dried vegetables, freeze dried fruits, and then mixing that in with your staples of rice, beans, pasta uh, and oats. Right. And try to have at least a two year supply of that. When disaster happens, you want to consume the food in your refrigerator and freezer first then move to your canned goods, then move to your dry storage for quick, easy meals. Have your MREs. If you're feeding a large group, mix your dry stores with your freeze-dried to amp up the, the food a little bit and give some extra proteins and carbs and calories and uh, and move on from there. So that's that's your basics for food preps. And and like I said, I'd love to tell you MREs are the only thing you need, but I, I just I honestly can't do that. You You need a wide variety of things. Bob, I really appreciate that. That was fantastic knowledge. And we have like two more pages of notes to pick your brain on. So why don't we do this? And it's funny because Craig and I can see each other's notes. And you actually covered what I was going to ask you next, which was to take us out of here on this podcast with some action steps. And you just did that. You did three good steps for people to follow now. But can you come back again? Can we do this again and, and kind of finish up and uh, pick up where we left off? 
Guys, I'm I'm always here for you. Anytime I can be of uh, help to you and your your listeners, I am more than willing to do it. In fact, uh, before we close out on our website, I went ahead and created just for your podcast followers a coupon code that is UST15, UST15, Uniform Sierra Tango 15. And that will give them a 15% discount off their entire order from our website. So um, recognize we have never given anybody <laughs> a 15% discount. The most we've ever given was 10, but you know, your, your viewers uh, or your listeners, you know, you, you guys do a great job getting the message out there and I want to make sure that they've got what they need and can get it at an affordable rate. So, so tell us a little bit more, how can people find you and find your company? Very simple. Uh, MRENation.com. Uh, check us out. The, the website's Fairly simple to navigate. Just type in the search bar what you're looking for. We're the only company uh, that I know of that is like us, where you can you can just buy components or drink mixes or accessory kits, you know, to, to make your own MREs at home. Uh, you can buy the main entrees if that's all you're wanting. Which is uh, real quick. I know we're running out of time, but one side note: if you're gonna store MREs for long-term storage, the mains are the main thing that you're looking for. The main entrees. What most people don't realize is your three to seven year shelf life does not begin uh, until the product is thawed. So if you're doing long shelf life, instead of investing in the full meals, invest in the mains only. Put those in a, in a deep freeze down in your basement, your garage or whatever. And then when the lights go out and the freezer stops working, your shelf life starts on those MREs. Um, That's so a, on our, on our website, tough. they can. Yeah, on our on our website, we have uh, vegan, vegetarian meals. Uh, we have special dietary needs. Uh, we can do kosher, halal, Sikh, Hindu, uh, whatever your religious dietary or physical dietary needs are. We have you covered. We're even coming out with a new keto MRE. It's taken us four months to get that one right. But we're coming out with keto MREs here in the next two weeks. Uh, and on our website, you can go on and custom design your own MRE. Uh, if you don't want to buy a variety case, if you'd rather pick the MREs that go in your case, we have a build your own case. We try to make it as easy as possible for everybody so that they can get just what they want and not a bunch of stuff that they don't want. So that's MRENation.com. Uh, coupon code UST15, UST15 for a 15% discount on their entire order. You're a good man, Bob. Appreciate that. Hey, my pleasure. My pleasure. Guys, if you ever want me back, just give me a holler. I'll be here for you. Sounds good. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Bob. Thank you. Have a fantastic day. You too, brother. Craig, that was a great time with Bob, wasn't it? You ready to close us out of here? Yeah, man. Sounds good. Bob's such a good guy. I'm so glad we had him on here. But for everybody else that continues on with us, subscribe to the podcast now. It's free to do so. You can ensure that you don't miss out when you subscribe, and we really appreciate that. It also helps us rank and do all the cool things that we need to do behind the scenes with the interwebs and all that kind of cool stuff for us to be continuing in our road of success. Many thanks of you who are listening who have already done that. If you enjoy this podcast, then please share it with your friends and family. Go over to iTunes and give us a five-star rating. That's vital. And click any of the links in the description below for the things that we've mentioned in the show today, support our sponsors and go grab some tiny survival guides and cards. All right, guys, thank you for listening. We'll see you next time on the survival show podcast. Keep it simple, be positive and stay sharp. <laughs>